Well, a few years ago, I sadly hit the spot of my life where I had to start wearing glasses, and some of you guys know what I'm talking about because I've always been really thrilled to have had 20-20 vision from a distance, and so I thought, well, you know, I have good vision, I shouldn't have any problems, but when you reach a certain age, for those of you who are in your 30s, 20s, 30s, and maybe early 40s, you'll see what I'm talking about one day, and that all of a sudden you'll look down and you just won't be able to read anything and you'll realize you'll have to go and get reading glasses. And when I, first started, when I first got reading glasses, I got these bifocals because that way I could wear them without, I, you know, it drives me crazy when people are preaching and they're doing this number all the time and it's really distracting. So I thought, you know, I'll get these bifocals that I'll, I can read reading glasses and then just clear up at the top. Well, I found out very quickly that you can't really judge perception uh, you know, if you've done this, like, I, I just nearly fell off the bleachers one day at a game. I've almost fallen off the stage, so I said, there's got to be a better way than this, right? And so I began to, uh, that's one good thing about the iPad, preaching from the iPad. You can make this text as big as you want, and so it's getting bigger and bigger every year. But whenever I get frustrated about my vision, uh, Michelle reminds me of someone in her family who has retinitis pigmentosis, I think I said that right, and it's a disease where you're gradually and slowly losing your vision, especially you start losing at night and losing a lot of peripheral vision. And then also, um, you know, just imagine just being totally blind or blind and not be able to see, you know, from birth or experience some traumatic uh, illness and, and be blind later on in life. And that's very, very hard to deal with. But honestly and truly, unlike physical sight problems where you see the digression taking place, you see it getting worse and worse. Spiritual blindness is much worse of a disease, and it can go extremely undetected in your life for many, many years without you even realizing that's the case. Spiritual blindness. And that's what we're going to see in our text today back in John chapter 9, that Jesus uses the healing of a physically blind man to teach a much, about a much worse disease, spiritual blindness. And in verse 39, even though we won't get there today in the text, Verse 39 really pulls all of this together where Jesus says, I am here to give sight to the blind and to make blind everyone who can see. And so he uses this actual healing of a blind man as a big parable for us today and for the disciples and people alive during Jesus' time to show them that spiritual blindness is a very, very bad thing. And the bad thing about spiritual blindness is you don't know that you have it. You're blind to your own blindness. And so we have to pray for God's grace, and we have to pray for the Holy Spirit, and we have to pray for others in the church to help us in this area. So we'll be back in, the, in John, and we'll be in John chapter 9. That's where we left off uh, back in, uh, I guess, probably May, and we're back in the Gospel of John. So let's pray, and we'll look at this passage of Scripture. Father God, we thank you for your word that truly does, uh, like a mirror, show us and reveals to us uh, our blindness, and it, and it shows us through the power of the Holy Spirit. It, it illuminates Scripture and shows us areas of our life that we are refusing to conform to your image or areas of our life where we just even aren't even aware that we're being extremely selfish and, and allowing our lives to be dictated by our feelings or just what we think is right versus what your word says is right. And God, I pray that you will open our eyes. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So the Gospel of John, we're, believe it or not, this is our 40th week in the Gospel of John, and we took a, a pretty long break there, but we're back in it. And so do a little catch-up for those who have come to church since 
we, uh, we took a break from John, and also just a reminder for many of us that the Gospel of John was written more than likely by Jesus's earthly best friend, John. Scripture says that John, the son of Zebedee, was the disciple whom Jesus loved. So Jesus had a, an extra affection for this guy, and they had a very, very close relationship. And we don't have to guess what John's purpose for writing the book of John is. He clearly states it near the end of the book in chapter 20, verse 31. He says, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so he says, Jesus is the Christ, okay? Maybe some of you think that Jesus Christ, Christ is Jesus' last name. That's not the case, okay? Christ means anointed or chosen one or Messiah. Now, one thing we're reading back into um, this, what we know about Messiah and anointed one, the, Jesus being the Christ, but during the time of Christ, most of the people were looking for something other than the Messiah that we know Jesus to be. They were looking for a conquering king, one who would come in, restore Israel to its prominence, run out the Romans and the enemies, and make uh, Israel like it was when the days of David and Solomon. That's what they were looking for in a Messiah. But look what John says in verse 31. He says that he's writing so that we can believe in Jesus as the Christ and we can have life in his name. All right? So let's, let's just think about that for a second. Jesus is offering us life in his name. And so the way that you're doing life apart from Jesus or with just a little Jesus sprinkled on your life is not the life that Jesus is offering. If we believe in Christ as the Son of God, he says, you'll have life in my name. And another way that we often get this wrong is we read into life, eternal life, which is true, eternal life, but we read into eternal life just living forever. And life is so much more than living forever. In fact, the focus of eternal life is not on our future in Scripture, but it's on our current standing in Jesus. And that's why eternal life starts now, because we understand that our standing in Jesus changes when we come to Jesus, that we're not the same person that we once were, that life is different, and our perspective is different, and as we follow Jesus and come to know more about Jesus, we experience more and more of this life. And so that's a very, very important thing to understand, because many of you are just holding out for eternity. Like, i got to get that eternal life, because, man, if I can make it through this, then I get there, and, and that's what it's all about, Right? And we're missing out on the fact that the more that we embrace our identity in Jesus Christ, the more that it changes everything about us and everything about what we do. And it changes about the, the, where we go and the way we think. Everything changes because we're experiencing eternal life in the here and now. And I was just thinking practically, what does that mean practically that we follow Jesus and we experience that here in the now, perspective change? Well, I was thinking this this morning as I was bringing my dad over from Willow Ridge, and we were talking about, you know, it's very fresh on his mind that my mother, his wife, uh, passed away. And we were talking about that, and, and, he, and, I, and we, we were mentioning one gentleman in the place who won't leave his room because he's just really counting down the days till he dies because his wife went first. And as we know many times, you know, it's usually, it seems like it's the man that goes first. And while obviously it's a struggle for him to question that, he understands that his purpose is not done. He said that to me one day. He said, I know that God left me here for a reason, and, and I've got a reason and a purpose for still being here. And, and that's not saying that what you're going through is easy. It's, by, it's sure not. 
And it's not saying you don't grieve and struggle and you're lonely, but it changes your perspective because your identity in Christ changes the way that you view the world. And so eternal life, we have life in his name. It's not just about getting to heaven. Having life in his name is about understanding who we are in Christ. And so the Gospel of John tells us that's the purpose, so you'll know Jesus. So you'll have a knowledge of him, not just in theory, but in experience, that you'll know Jesus. And as Paul said, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, so I can be conformed into his likeness. And that's our prayer today. So the Gospel of John, just a little facts about it, it was written several decades later than our other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And the author, as he's writing Gospel of John, he assumes that his readers are at least familiar with the content of these other Gospels. And so John gives us a completely different perspective than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John gives us a perspective where he focuses in on the nature of Christ and his work. And we see this clearly back in chapter 1, where John, instead of starting out his book with the birth of Jesus or starting out with genealogies like the other books do, John starts off in this incredible high view of Jesus where he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so he, he lifts Jesus up as there in the beginning, when God created everything, Jesus was part of that. He was in, involved in creation. In fact, if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, where he said, let us make man in our own image. You see the Trinity there. You see Jesus' involvement in the creation of the world. And John states it clearly. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then as we fast forward to chapter 9 in our text, we're going to see Jesus, being God, able to do things that humans are not able to do without God's power on them, and he heals a blind man. Now, to catch you up from chapter 8, chapter 8 was a very, very heavy confrontation with the religious leaders of the day. In fact, it was such a serious and heated exchange that he told them, I existed before Abraham. Do you remember when we talked about that? Yeah, he pointed to the fact that they said, we're Abraham's children. He's like, I existed before Abraham. And he said, I am, and, and invoked the, the name of God, the technical name of God there. And as a result, they tried to stone Jesus back in chapter 8. But now we see in chapter 9, Jesus isn't going to back down. Jesus is just coming out into the crowds, and he performs this miracle. And it may make you think, why would Jesus be bold? They're trying to stone him back in chapter 8, and now chapter 9, he's just doing life like he would normally do it. And I think one thing we have to remember is during this time period, the Jewish people did not have the right to kill. They did not have the right to execute people. And so while I'm reading the text and studying this, I'm thinking that this chapter 8 event and these times where they get so mad, it's just an impulsive decision. They want to, dis they want to kill Jesus, but they know that that would really harm their relationship with Rome and it would jeopardize the peace that they had but if they would do something like that, but although we know if you lose your temper and you're crazy enough, you can do anything and forget about what the consequences are. So chapter 9 opens with Jesus. He passes by this man who has been blind his entire life. And we looked at chapter 9, this first part of this, way back months ago. But Jesus, here he is, is publicly, he just heals this man. And in response to his healing, it exposes the religious leaders again for being spiritually blind, they're frauds, they're false, they're prejudiced, and they're shallow. And it also shows us not only the, the Pharisees, but it also shows us Jesus' disciples. They have this typical worldview that existed during this time. 
Because when Jesus came across the blind man, the, the comment was that who sinned, this man or his parents, so that he's in the situation. And so Jesus exposes the fact that this worldview is wrong because in their mind, if somebody's suffering, if somebody is dealing with some physical problem, then there's a punishment for something they've done or somewhere along the line something that's happened. But Jesus' response proves that this is not the case at all, that difficulties and problems are a result of sin in the garden, for sure, that brought sin into the world, but not necessarily personal sins or failures. And so that's important for us to remember. When we go through things, sometimes it's our, our first choice is to say, what have I done, right? God's mad. What did I, have I done? And, and while we know it's true that our choices have a great impact on our life, it's also true that bad things can happen to those who've done nothing to deserve that. And that's the case in the situation of this man. And so we see, you know, in, within churches today, we see crazy beliefs when it comes to suffering and these type of things that people maybe good-intentioned people can do things and say things that really beat down those who are going through really, really difficult situations. And, you know, they can say, is there a sin that you've forgotten to confess that maybe that's wrong? Or maybe, you know, you must have somebody you haven't forgiven. Otherwise, you haven't, you know, you wouldn't be going through this. And then you have some people even with the, I forgot the word here. Um, Help me out here. Come on. Audacity. Audacity. There you go. Thank you. Audacity. I'm getting helped out by, you know, like, how grade are you in? Thank you very much. Appreciate that. What grade are you in? Seventh grade. All right. Seventh, seventh grader, just help me out. All right. The audacity to point to, you know, these, these things and say, well, it's because you don't have any faith because you should get off your medication, all right? You're, you're, you're trusting science or you're trusting medicine versus trusting God. And people can do these type of things to you and, and tell you, just, just believe that you're not sick, all right? It's in your head. Believe that you're not sick. And so it's crazy that in this worldview, and it's still true in ours, but Jesus was clear, look, it's not the man who sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed on him. Verse 3, God was going to use this for his glory. And so in verse 6, we see that Jesus anoints the blind man's eyes with some self-made mud, and then he tells them to go and wash his eyes in the pool of Siloam, and then the man comes back and he can see. And the Pharisees, instead of being happy for the man or honoring what Jesus did to restore his sight, they lose their mind again. They go on the attack again. Why? Because they thought that they had spiritual sight, when in reality they were blind. They were blind to the fact that God uses these things for his glory and that sickness isn't necessarily a result of sin, that God has his priorities, that they don't understand Scripture, and also the fact that they're just prideful and they've established their traditions to guard their Sabbath to make it where people do anything that they say is wrong. They're the moral police, they're the law police, and they're going to show that this is wrong and evil. And so they get hung up on this. Look at, so we're going to pick up in verse 13. It's where we left off in verse 12 back months ago. And so hopefully you're caught up in the story. If not, you can go back and reread that. But verse 13 they brought, this would be the friends and neighbors and maybe people who had interacted with this man, this blind man. So it says, they brought uh, to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. He said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God. For he does not keep the Sabbath. 
All right? So, so hard to believe that their reaction would be to condemn Jesus for not properly honoring their traditions for the Sabbath and how they interpreted the fourth command. And they'd have elevated their oral traditions up to the point where it was on the level of Scripture and no one could, and, and, and if you look at Jesus' actions, nothing he did violated anything that is in the law according to what we should do or not do on the Sabbath according to that time period. None of the actions, spitting, applying the mud, sending him to the pole of Siloam, uh, washing his face, and even healing us, this was not forbidden in the law of Moses. So rather than question their own understanding in this situation, what do they do? They assume that Jesus is wrong, that he's a sinner, and they reject him, and they begin to attack him and try to debunk the miracle. And so even those in verse 16, the second part of verse 16, even those who are not necessarily hostile toward Jesus, they're still more focused on the how of the miracle than the who of the miracle on Jesus. Look at verse 16, the second half. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. And so they're focused in on the how. How could a man do this thing? And they do find it, they find it hard to believe that a sinner, someone who's sinning before God, could actually do this type of miracle and break the Sabbath, break the Sabbath and still do this. But they're focused on, again, just the how instead of focusing on Jesus. In verse 17, so they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And, and this is clearly sarcasm at this point because they don't believe at this point that Jesus really did this miracle. We'll see in a second. He said, he is a prophet. And so the man who's been healed, he at least acknowledges at this point, even though he's never actually physically seen Jesus at this point in the narrative, Jesus healed him, he was blind, he went and washed, then Jesus went away. But he still knows that Jesus must be from God and working on God's behalf. And so he understands that Jesus is something special. And so this idea they're throwing around, he's breaking the Sabbath, he's a sinner. The blind man knows better than that. He knows that God's hand has to be upon Jesus. The Jewish leaders, however, doubt the validity of this man's claim. Look at verse 18. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had just received his sight. So the Jewish leaders, they just would not accept this. It's got to be a trick. It's got to be some, some scheme that they're doing. This can't be true. There's no way this man was born blind. So they bring in his parents. They called him in. So it's like a subpoena during that time. It shows you the power the religious leaders had during this day, that they could subpoena the parents to come and to testify in front of them. And calling the, So they called him in, and they asked him, is this your son who you say was born blind? And then they asked the second question, and then how, how then does he see? Verse 20, his parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. Now look at verse 21. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. So yes, they acknowledge in front of the religious leaders, yes, he's our son, and yes, he was born blind, and they probably at this point hung their head in shame, again, because of the worldview of the day being that he sinned, or even they could have sinned to bring this about. So yes, he was born that way, 
But the parents are concerned here for their own spiritual well-being. They want some legal separation from their son. Why? Why wouldn't they just answer the last question, how does he now see? Because they know the answer to this. We're going to see in verse 22 and 23. They feared being excommunicated. Again, the power of the religious leaders that Jesus is pushing up against. They can excommunicate people from their synagogues and, re- and refuse to allow them to worship. Look, look at verse 22. His parents said these things, so they lied because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. And so they pushed this off. They won't answer this. So the religious leaders, full of pride, full of self-righteousness. And here's the thing, talking about blindness, and we'll get to this more fully next week. But spiritual pride is the absolute worst kind of pride. And here they do, they take their power and they want to intimidate and use their control in order to get the results they want. They refuse to acknowledge the healing power of Jesus because of their man-made additions to the law and they totally miss the, the heart behind this in the first place. They miss the purpose of the law as Jesus exposed back in the Sermon on the Mount. And because of their spiritual pride, they were consumed with Jesus' popularity, his authority, and he was a threat to their control over society. And so the spiritual leaders were completely out of tune with the God they claimed to have represented. Completely out of touch. Some years back, we got a call on Saturday night, probably 8 o'clock, 7, 8 o'clock at night, and we heard from my sister-in-law that their house was on fire in Tallahassee. And I told her about this years ago, but we hustled down to Tallahassee, and we saw their house that was engulfed in flames. And we got there fairly, pretty quick, and it was, it was just raging out of control. The fire department was there trying to put out the fire. It was just really, really horrible, terrible fire, particularly in this area on this side of the house where the garage was, and pretty much everything in that area was just incinerated completely. Well, I think it was the next day we went back to help them after church. We went back to help them kind of go through the rubble and kind of pull out things. And one thing that will always stick with me was right inside of this wall that was is this area where it's totally burnt down, there was a freezer there. And I opened the freezer up, and inside there was ice cream. And I, and I thought, this should, this should be interesting. Open it up, and the ice cream was pretty much intact. There was no power, hadn't been any power, and there, you know, of course, the heat was extreme, yet the ice cream still remained in spite of the fire. And I thought about that as I was thinking about these spiritual leaders of the day and thinking about how that they totally missed what the purposes of God were. And it led me to think and cross-reference a passage in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 12 through 15. You'll see where I'm going with this illustration where Paul writes, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stone, stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on, on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. 
And what these verses show us is how we should evaluate our ministries. If, if you get the context of the setting in Corinth where Paul was writing, some of the people were seeking to build God's kingdom, but they were depending upon human wisdom. And Paul says, these are perishable things. When the fire comes, these things are going to be burnt up. And so he tells them that need to be, that they need to build upon God because the judgment of God's fire will expose what, the, what was in their heart. And although in Paul's situation where he's writing to believers, he says they'll escape. He's like, you're barely going to escape. And what a great reminder, not only for spiritual leaders, those who are leaders, deacons and elders in our church, pastors in our church, but for anyone who has any kind of spiritual authority. And I would say that's most people in here because you have children that look to you for spiritual guidance. Some of you work in G-Kids or Refuge. And, and so we need to think about our ministries. Are they being built upon Jesus? Here, And it just baffles me that the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day could say they know God, could have memorized large portions of Scripture, know the Scriptures backwards and forwards, better than any of us can imagine, yet God was standing right in front of them. And not only did they not accept Him, they killed Him. And so as we minister... And as we serve and as we represent Jesus, the question is, we can claim to know Jesus and we can claim to follow Jesus and we can have a relationship with Jesus, yet not build our lives and ministries upon Jesus. And we can let pride, spiritual pride, come into our lives, into our homes. And this can show itself in several different ways. Guys, you know what I'm talking about here. Pride can stop you from being a spiritual leader in your home, okay? Spiritual pride can stop you because you think, oh, I don't know what to say, like, and I'm embarrassed. I don't know, you know, to pray in front of my kids, that's going to be weird and awkward. Or all of a sudden, you know, say, hey, okay, let's pray. They're going to think I'm silly. Or, you know, what's wrong with you? And Satan puts all these things in your mind, and the guys in here, you, you particularly know what I'm talking about, where this pride comes in. And you attempt to lead, but you're not following Jesus because you're letting your pride get in the way. And you're refusing to really see how weak you truly are. And then other people, it's the other side of the equation where maybe that you're abusing your spiritual authority like the Pharisees were. That you're controlling of your family. And I'm particularly probably the guys here, controlling of your family. You're using your authority and in the name of submission, you're just ruling with a rod of iron in your home. And we know that most of uh, the younger generation believe that's the case for the older generation. But the truth is, it still exists no matter what generation you are. There's still those people who still take that religious fervor and authority and think, I'm going to use it to get my way and control people. And so pride, attempting to have a godly marriage without Jesus, that can happen, right? I want a moral marriage. I want a good marriage. But Jesus isn't the focus of your marriage. And I encourage you to just very simply come back to Jesus and let Jesus be the center. Follow Jesus in every area of your life. And don't let spiritual pride creep in where you're allowing your marriage to be built on fear, intimidation, guilt, or every discussion turns into a, a win-loss and you're missing the bigger point that your marriage is to represent Jesus Christ and his love for the church. Yet we turn everything into a battle, into a conflict. 
or giving the silent treatment or belittling comments. These things are signs that we're allowing pride to get in the way. I would encourage you. We, we talk a lot about marriage mentoring here. And I encourage you to sign up in the app for marriage mentoring if you're struggling in your marriage, if you're really seeing some of these pride issues surface in your marriage, that I, I encourage you to sign up and we'll connect you with a mentor who can really walk you through things. Obviously, they can't fix everything. That has to be the, the, the job of the Holy Spirit using the Word of God, but you, they can be used by God to help you in this situation. And so, as we go back to the text, I encourage you to, re, to, to respond to that and, and go on the app right now. Even flip away from your notes. Go to the app and sign up for marriage mentoring right now. I need that. I need that. So, back to the text. So, they, they called the man's parents out of fear of the spiritual leaders. They refused to answer the question. Instead, they say, he's old enough. Ask him. Push it back on him. And so, here they go again. They want to talk to the guy. This interrogation, verse 24. So, for the second time... They called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And so this idea of give glory to God, what's that about? Well, that's about them really calling up an oath before God. They want him to make an oath that he's going to tell the truth. And it's interesting how now they're so self-righteous. You know, Call God into this. Give glory to God. And, and oftentimes pride is found in those people who think they love God the most. All right? Pride is found in those people who think they love God the most. I see that all the time. And here they are. They think, well, we're going to give glory to God. That's what it's about, right? And they're just blind to their own spiritual blindness. And so they call forth this oath, and they command him, and they're demanding him, tell the truth, and they already have the end result they want, right? You know this man's a sinner. Jesus is a sinner. You know he did this on the Sabbath day. He's sinning. And so he says, you should honor God by telling the truth. You know this man is wrong. The Jews are convinced. Look how the man answers in verse 25. He answers, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know is that I was blind, but now I see. I love that. Look, you guys are the religious authorities. Maybe you're going to have to figure that out. But I do know one thing. I was blind, but now I see. This man had experienced something that he knew only God could provide. And he didn't know the theological implications yet of what that means. And we'll see that next week when he actually encounters Jesus again. And Jesus walks him through, and then he comes to an understanding of Jesus as the Messiah. But at this point, he knew something was different, and it had to be a God thing. And he celebrates that. So as we bring this kind of home, part one and part next week, part two, we got to ask ourselves a question. Are we spiritually blind? Do we know the word? Are we in church? Are we you know, doing a lot of the right things, but inside of our hearts we're covering up just some really, really nasty, awful, terrible things? And maybe some things are in your control. Maybe some things are out of your control. Maybe some things you're just not aware of in your life. You're just blind to your own blindness. But pride is a result of spiritual blindness. It's probably one of those, which came first, the chicken or the egg, right? Spiritual blindness leads to pride. Pride leads to spiritual blindness. And pride is always a result of taking our eyes off Jesus and what he's done for us on the cross. And so what do we do about it? Our hearts. If you think you can see on your own, you can't. Ask for grace to admit your need for spiritual sight. Ask God for the grace 
And then the hands. Follow Jesus out of pride and into the light. Follow Jesus out of pride and into the light. As I said earlier, experiencing eternal life is so much more than living forever. It's following Jesus by focusing upon your identity in Christ. And we talked a lot about that last week. And that's a very practical hands application. Don't just say, follow Jesus. I'm going to follow Jesus out of pride into the light. Truly know that Jesus is life. And turn your eyes, as we were just saying, upon Jesus. Turn your eyes on Jesus. And look at his face every single day. In his word, you're reading, and not just reading for knowledge as the Pharisees did, but you're reading to know Jesus. And you're asking him as you read, open my eyes to my spiritual blindness. And some of us, we don't want to know. We don't want our spiritual blindness exposed because it's our way of covering up our sloth, our spiritual sloth, our sin. We don't want those areas of our heart exposed where we're hiding from God or I don't want to give God that area of my life. Admit that and pray and ask God for his grace to see the things you don't see and follow Jesus into the light. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for Jesus and just returning to the gospel of John and just how much we love focusing in on his life and the things he did and the way he lived. And God, may we allow our hearts just to more fully embrace our identity and who we are in Christ. For anyone here who has never truly encountered Jesus the first time, they don't know Jesus as their Savior. They've never believed upon Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ. God, I pray that today will be that day of salvation for them, that your word will open their spiritual heart, the eyes of their spiritual heart, but they'll be open to see Jesus as so much more than just a religion that some people follow or a good feeling or something that works on Sundays, but help them to see that Jesus is life. He's everything. And God, I pray that for the first time they'll see the cross and see the sacrifice that Jesus made on their behalf for their sins, and they'll embrace the cross and the righteousness that you give them and take away their sins. And God, for us as Christians, help us to remember that we can do ministry spiritually blind and full of pride, and that we can do things on our own strength and on yesterday's knowledge and on yesterday's experiences instead of depending upon you and following you each and every day. And God, I pray you'll help us to run every day to you and experience the eternal life that you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen.